that we have the freedom to continue to talk about Jesus 225 years later to the day. And we pray, Father, that we would count this a privilege to be able to listen to your word. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, choices, choices, choices. Every single day, uh, lots of us have all sorts of uh, choices to make. Uh, life is absolutely full of choices. Uh, I, I know you, you would have made a myriad of choices today. You decided what to wear. You decided to, to, to be here. And some of, us, some of us, when it comes to choices, I don't know if, where you're going to put yourself. Some of us are really cautious uh, about our choices. You know, the, the whole idea of making a choice just paralyzes you in sort of, you know, absolute fear. Uh, some of us are not, are not cautious at all. Some of us are absolutely impulsive. And for example, you know, you know that, that the, this situation, you sort of head down to the shops and all of a sudden you're walking sh- past the pet shop and then the next morning you wake up and there's a dog just licking you on the face. And you say, I swear I went to the shops to get milk, but we ended up with a dog. Like, I, I don't know whether you... <laughs> I haven't done that, but I know impulsive people who do that sort of stuff. I don't know whether you're up the impulsive end of making decisions or up the cautious end of making decisions. Uh, some of the choices that we make seem huge at the time and that end up being small. And some of the decisions that we make, they seem really insignificant, but then they end up being really significant. And sometimes we don't know what those choices are. Uh, some of us love choice. I, I don't know about you, but I, I went to a Chinese restaurant last night, and y- you know, you get massive choice. You know when you get those menus, and some people love it, and there's like 67 things on the menu, and you're just like, fantastic, I'm going to get exactly what I want. And then there's the other end of the personality spe- spectrum, you look at that menu, and you go, oh my goodness, this is killing me. Like, I just can't decide, and you're just sweating, and you just, can they just give me three options? Or can we just have a fixed menu? It's just so much easier. I, I don't know what end of the spectrum you're up to. Um, but whenever we make a choice, something goes on up here. There's, I, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not sure how the brain works. But apparently there's something that goes on in your, in your brain when you make a choice. And, and it, it's sort of based on, isn't it? it uh, generally, I reckon this is true, is that the choices that we make in a moment are not based on what we're thinking right that second. It's not just that. It's all the stuff that's gone in here over years in our experiences and what we've decided to sort of pour into our head that decides actually the decisions that we make. And this passage sort of challenges us, I think, about how we decide. But more than that, it says, how invested actually are we in the decisions that our, our friends make? Because it seems like when you read this letter that Paul is incredibly invested in the decisions that his friends are making. And he's so invested in it that he he decides that he's going to write a prayer, which is an incredible prayer, to sort of tell us what are the sort of things we ought to be praying in the face of our friends that we love very much, making all sorts of different decisions. You've got to remember where, where we are. So come over to Philippians chapter 1 and come back to where, we've, where we uh, keep that part of the Bible open. And you'll notice that I've got an outline there and you'll find that really helpful for just flowing the logic of this passage. Remember where we were last week? I'll just catch this up if you weren't here. That uh, As Paul is writing, he's 1,300 kilometers away from the church in Philippi. He's in Rome. He's in jail. It's 10 years after he's planted the church. Um, and yet, even though he's in jail and even though he's 1,300 kilometres away, 
He's joyous. And this word joy just seems to come up in the letter again and again and again. And we saw last week that it's right that Paul feels this way about this church. Why? Because from the first day, from that moment that Lydia was converted by the river and she gave her life to Christ and the Lord uh, opened her heart to this day when Paul sits in jail and every day in between, it's right that he feels this way because of their partnership in the gospel. I mean, did the distance, did 1,300 kilometres and the fact that Paul's in a jail cell, did that keep them from being partners in the gospel? Absolutely not. They prayed for each other. They encouraged each other. The Philippians gave money to Paul to continue his ministry. They sent Epaphroditus to care for him. They loved him. And when Paul thinks about this little church, he smiles and he's happy because of their partnership in the gospel. And it's true, isn't it? It just makes you smile when you're, when you're amongst a group of people, as I look around at you guys, who, you know, when we do life and we share in the gospel together, it just makes you smile when you see God's work in us, yeah? And when, then we came to that incredibly encouraging verse in verse 6, um, and that is that God, Paul knew that the work that God had begun in the Philippians, he was going to carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus when Jesus comes back. God's no quitter. The work he started here... He, he, he's going to carry it on. He, he's not, he's not going to let this go. He's going to carry it on to the completion of the day of Christ Jesus. And they hung their lives on that truth. And you've hung your life on that truth. And I've hung my life on that truth. That the work that God has begun in us, that he's going to finish it. He's no quitter. And when you're in partnership with the gospel together, it creates an affectionate relationship between us, yeah? And you saw that in Paul. Look at verse 7, how he talks about them. Look at verse 7 again. He says, It's right for me to think this way about all of you, because what does he say? Because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the establishment of the gospel. I mean, when Paul thought about them, he said, I hold you right here. When I'm thinking about you, church that I love, you are right here. I have you in my heart. Now, men... You've got to remember that Paul, this is the blokiest man in history, right? Okay? And he's talking about his feelings. It's possible. It is. It is. In fact, the blokiest men in history talk about their feelings. I mean, this, Paul had more scars and more beatings than a USC fighter. And yet here he is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, I have you in my heart. That is an extremely blokey thing to say. It is okay, men in particular, although I, I don't, don't want to stereotype here, um, that, uh, uh, for example, uh, I, when I was sharing this passage with Lenore, uh, I'm much more a person who talks about their, their feelings than Lenore is. Uh, Lenore's very, you know, much more reticent to talk about how she feels than I am, so we sort of have that reverse stereotype thing going on in our family. But it's true, isn't it, men? That, and ladies, that it, it's a cool thing to do to come up after church and say, I have you in my heart, I love you, to someone else at church because of the partnership that we have in the gospel. It's a blokey thing to do. Man, let, let's do that. It's a blokey way to think. Look, how, look what Paul said. Look at verse 8. He says, For God is my witness, how deeply I miss you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you get more affectionate than that? <laughs> no? It's a blokey way to think. But this is no sentimental relationship. Uh, I don't like those sort of relationships. You, know, you know, it's all sort of flowers and fairies and it's not grounded in reality. No. 
these guys, their relationship is grounded in the reality of the fact that they're on mission together. They're out there sharing the gospel together. The blood and the sweat and the tears of being in partnership in persecution and in Paul's sufferings, that's what gets them, keeps them tight. And this fellowship that they had, it was a gospel-intoxicated fellowship. We saw that last week. That at the centre was the gospel. And that's what kept them tight. Not their personal preferences, not what they looked like, not their nationality, that the gospel was at the centre. So when you have a fellowship like that, and you love people, what do you pray for them? What do we pray for each other? Well, Paul says, in light of all the decisions we're going to make, Paul says this. What does he say in verse 9? He says, and I pray this. Now, and Paul, what he's about to do, he's about to tell us about what he prays and how he prays, and he's a great model for us. Because at the moment, remember when Paul writes this, he's in a cell, he's in Rome, he's imprisoned, and yet he's got a joyous smile on his face, and he prays for the people that he loves. And what does he pray? I don't know about you, but just have a quick scan over this prayer. Just, just have a quick look. We're just going to have a look at verses 9 to 11, right? I've got to say that as I read this prayer this week, it was pretty humbling. Because I thought, do, we pray, do I pray like this for people? Do I, have we ever prayed like this? And you see, it's really important that we pray for all sorts of things for our friends. But when Paul seems to elevate a prayer like this above everything else that he's praying for, do we pray like this? And firstly, have a look at the first thing that he prays, right? He prays this. Have a look. It's, it's, it's stunning. Firstly, he prays that their love would keep on growing. Do you notice that? And you know what's so stunning about that? That there's no object. So, so what he doesn't say is, he doesn't say, I pray that your love for God would keep on growing. He doesn't say that. And neither does he say, I don't pray that your love for each other would keep on growing. What, why did he not say that? I think he said that because it's as our love for God continues to grow, then we can't help but love other people. Isn't that true? Because if we want to love people better then we, love, we want to learn to love God more. And as we learn to love God more, then it's just natural that we learn to love other people more. And the other thing that he, he prays is he prays that your love, did you notice, would keep on growing, that you would be more love and more love and more love and more love. And I don't know about you, but I was thinking about the Philippian church. This is a really encouraging church. I mean, there was an incredibly loving church. They've been generous to Paul in so many different ways. And then he says, I want your love to keep on growing and growing and growing and growing. Paul is never satisfied with how much they're loving one another. It's the same with us. It's not like we can say, oh, you know what, God? Uh, I think I've reached my limit of love for you. I just, I just think I've captured it. I just think I, I, I've got you in your sort of box and I, I love you enough now. Or you go up to your friends and you say, look, I, I think I've reached my limit of love for you. I'm just, I'm just loving you is about the maximum. Right? And just so you know, there's ne- no, never going to be any more love from me to you. Just so you know. We, we, would ne- we would never say something like that, right? But Paul is never satisfied. You've you seen that ad recently on TV for the new Nissan Pulsar. This isn't a commercial. I, I, I hate Nissan Pulsars. But anyway, you've seen the new ad. And, and, and you know, um, if you've got one, that's cool. I, I used to have one, so there you go. But... Um, and it was my brother's. But, um, and he let me drive it, and then I sort of wrecked it. And 
because I couldn't drive a manual. But um, anyway, that's another story. Have you seen this new ad? And you know, it's, there's, there's the CEO of the company, and he's the elderly Japanese man, and then you've got the guys designing the new Nissan Pulsar, right? And he's designed it, and it's like, have you seen this ad? It's 2007, and he says, like, he takes it, and he pr- proudly presents it before his boss, and the guy goes, more. And he goes, oh, ah. So, you know, he's back to the drawing board, and he makes the boot bigger or something, and the engine faster, I don't know. And then he comes back, and the next year, he proudly presents it before the CEO of Nissan, and he goes, more. And he's, you know, he's exhausted and sweating. He looks like he's going to die. And then all of a sudden, you know, and he comes back. It's 2010. And then all of a sudden, you know, he presents this new Nissan Pulsar. And what, and what does the guy say? More. And the guy, you know, he's just worn out at this point. Eventually, you know, he gets to, you know, 20, 2013. And he presents the car. And he goes, right. And then he shows him the price. And what does he say? Less. And it gets corny at that point, don't you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Paul is never satisfied with the love that we have for God, which then rushes out to other people. We can, he prays that we would grow and grow and grow in our love for each other. But in praying for that, that our love would grow, it's not this shapeless, uniform, airy-fairy overflow of love. What does he pray? Have a look at verse 9 with me. He says, And I pray this, that your love would keep on growing in what? In knowledge. And in every kind of discernment. And our postmodern culture does not get this at all, the relationship between love and knowledge. In, in the 60s, those of you who remember, or, you know, what did you need in the 60s? All you needed was what? Love and da 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 da. That's right, that's all we needed, right? right? Well, not we, I didn't, I wasn't alive. But um, the thing is, and, and what was that other proverb that we sort of go by? Love is blind. And, and what, what does that mean? Love is blind. Can you, someone tell me, what do, you, what do you think love is blind is meant to try and capture? Is that you don't see faults in people because you're so besotted by them that... Is that what it means? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, is that in our eyes sometimes, the way that we love people, we don't connect it with knowledge. We don't connect it with ways of thinking. Love is a feeling. It's got nothing really to do with knowledge. They're not connected with us. And yet... Because our relationship with God is exactly that, a relationship, then of course we want to grow in our knowledge of him. Um, Who's seen that show, you know, Find My Family? Have you seen that? Does that, for those of you who are feeling full type people, uh, do you 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 just sort of cry every time you see that show? Anyway, I've never cried in it. And (laughs) it's true, because I don't know, like, and this, this can be very personal for lots of people because, um, it, you know, the, the Find My Family is often it's getting families together that haven't seen each other like forever. And like you'll see the show and a father who has never met his son, virtually never met or hasn't seen him since he's a tiny little baby. And then all of a sudden, 30 years later on this show, they meet together in the park. Could, could you imagine what that would be like? And, and he, he's a father and his son is dying to meet him and wants to know him. Could you imagine if at that point they come and they sit down on the park bench, a son who's never known his father. And his father, what does he want to do? Well, of course he wants to tell him about himself because he wants, he wants his son to, to know him. Could you imagine at that point when the, the father says, he starts to introduce himself. He says, you know, my name's Gary and, and I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. And, and, and the son goes, shh, 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 sh
And, and what does the son say? Well, the son says, well, look, I, I just wanted to know that you existed, but I don't actually want to know anything about you. See, it'd be a strange God, wouldn't it, who could be loved better by being known less. Isn't that true? Because if someone, and you'll see this, you know when someone's a new Christian, and they love God heaps based on just having a little bit of knowledge about him, how much more do we come to love God when we know more about him? Because the, the more, Paul says, we know about God, the more reasons we have to love him. Because God is perfect. Every time you learn more about him, you've just got another reason to love him, is what Paul is saying. And that is absolutely true without exception. You can't learn more about God and know God and not love him more when you find out more about him. And Paul's always on a bit about this, that knowledge comes... And Christian love comes when the work of the Holy Spirit impresses the revelation about Jesus Christ on our hearts. We know him better so that we might love him and love others more. The more that you're in this, and this is not a mathematical equation, I don't mean head knowledge, I mean head knowledge that goes down into here, into heart and affects what you do. The more that you're in this, the more that we know God better, the more that we'll love him and love other people. And and we've got to remember this and really take it to heart and I guess here's maybe the other the negative way of talking about it do you know that a superficial love of God you just don't feel much for him is generally a sign of a superficial knowledge of God it's pretty hard to be passionate about someone that you just don't know of course you're not going to be passionate about something if our knowledge of God is paper thin right if it's just really thin then our love for him will be exactly the same. And so that's why we meet together every single week and we pour over the scriptures together and we meet together midweek to look at the scriptures together. Not to fill our heads with information, but so that we might know our Father, so that we might love him. And then that love would then rush out to other people, is what Paul is saying. But not only that, uh, that's why Paul prayed like this. But he also prayed that not only would our love grow in knowledge, but it would grow in, what's the next few words? That it would grow in every kind of discernment. And now, this is practical. <laughs> We've got to be discerning. We've got decisions to make. We need insight. And do you know this word, when Paul says our love's got to, uh, our love's got to grow more and more in knowledge in every kind of discernment, this word doesn't appear again in the whole of the New Testament. It appears 27 times in the rest of the Bible. 22 times in Proverbs. And how true is this? Have a look at the proverb that's on your outline there. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 7. It says this. How true is this? The lips of the wise, what do they do? They broadcast knowledge. They trumpet discernment. It's the same word. But not so the hearts of fools. I don't know what happens when you read that and you think about the conversations you've had with people during the week. Some of us have really wise people that are, talking, are speaking to our lives and helping us to make decisions. Some of us have absolute fools that are speaking into your life. It's true. From the lips of the wise, some of you this week, you have heard knowledge broadcasted, discernment broadcasted, wisdom was pouring into your ears. For some of you this week, you were drinking up the words of fools. I don't know. Yeah, could you tell? Uh, maybe you were speaking words of discernment and some of you were speaking words of foolishness. 
Because the, it, not every, everything that everyone says is wise, and we know this. But the Philippians, they need to make decisions, and we need to make decisions. Why? Look at verse 10. It's so that, you see the reason? So that you can approve of the things that are, that are what? That are superior. The reason why Paul's praying for this church, and the reason why we pray for each other, is so that we can actually decide what the better things to do are, what the superior things to do are. So that we can actually weigh things up together. Because all of us, I reckon as I list these things out, lots of you are making decisions like this. Um, Should I take this job? I had a conversation with someone this week. Should I take this job or should I take that one? Should I study this degree or should I study that one? Right? Should should we holiday there or should we holiday there? Uh, Should I live there or should I live there? Should I spend my money on this or should I spend my money on that? Should I spend my time on this or should I spend my time on that? All the time we're sort of weighing up stuff all the time, trying to work it out. And we're used to that, to working out what's superior and what's not superior. But how do you do it? Uh, You ever seen that ad? You know that John West ad about the salmon? Do you remember that? I saw it again this week. You know, and, and he's got the salmon, and the guy's walking along, and he's got, he, he's just, he's just, John West has just rejected that salmon, right? And the, and the fisherman's got it, and all of a sudden a guy walks along and says, oh, that's a beautiful salmon. And he says, no, John West just rejected it. And he goes, why would he re- reject a salmon like that? And he says, ah, oh, it's a dog salmon. You know, it's, um, I think that's the accent. And, um, you know, because it's, you know, it's dry, and it's a bit grey looking, or whatever. And then what does he do with the salmon? He passes it off to one of the other fishmongers that's going to sell it to someone else. And the guy goes, how can you do that? And the guy goes, I don't know how he lives with himself. You know? And then what's the slogan? It's the fish that John West rejects that makes what? John West the best. Right? This is an incredibly practical prayer because what we want to be praying for each other is that we don't have the ability to just choose between right and wrong, but that we actually have the ability to choose what is best. Isn't that what he's saying? Because it depends on how you see God. For example, if you, if you only see God, I've been thinking about this, tell me if you think I'm right later on. If you only see God as your judge, then this is how you'll think about God. You'll think, I just want to work out what's right, what's wrong, and I'll do the right stuff so he's happy, and so he doesn't get angry with me. Because God's my judge, and I, don't, I just, just, just don't want to annoy him. So just tell me what's right and wrong, and I'll try and do the right thing so he's not annoyed. If you only see God as your judge, that's how you want to relate to him. But if we see God as our Father, who loves us, we want to know him and we want to please him. And we don't just want to choose what's right and wrong. We want to know what's best, as opposed to second best. And we want to know how to please him, not just to keep him from not being angry, And that's what Paul prays for his friends. We want to grow in discernment. We want to grow in the ability of being able to weigh up things and make wise decisions. And we have to fight our culture on this one, don't we? Because what does our culture say? You speak to a friend during the week and they say, look, you just choose what's right for you. Have you heard this? Yeah, and look, there's no such thing, Wendy, as a poor decision. If you make the decision, then that makes it the right decision. You've heard this? And if it feels good, mate, just do it. I tell you what, Johnny, whatever's right for you, just do it. That's, that's baloney. Right? And so we become really hesitant to get invested in the lives of other people and the decisions they're making, and we don't like listening to other people. And that's crazy. 
Because we all make dumb choices. I've made my fair share, right? And sometimes friends stand by and watch their friends make absolutely ludicrously dumb decisions. And sometimes those little unwise decisions that we make actually then have large, much larger ramifications down the track. And Paul says you ought to pray that you have discernment so you can choose the things that are superior. Not right and wrong, but better. Because lots of us here, you know, at the moment, we don't have really trouble working out the big, the big choices. Like, we know that theft and murder are wrong, just so you know. Yeah? And that generosity and justice are always right. We, we know that. But there's grey areas a lot of the time, and there's, there seems to be options, and there seems to be not a moral thing going on at that point in time. And that's exactly at that point in time when we need the wisdom of God's word from other people. When I'm making a big decision, often I'll seek out the counsel of other people. And can I tell you what? You know when someone is soaked in the Word of God and you know that they're, this, you know that they're in this thing all the time and then you ask them about a big decision you're going to make and they, they just seem to know what to do? That's absolutely no fluke. That's absolutely no fluke. Paul prays that we would grow in our love of each other and love of God in knowledge and in discernment so that we can make decisions that are superior to other ones. And we don't want to just have the right priorities. We want to have the best priorities, the best habits. We want to make the best decisions for ourselves and our families, not just right and wrong. And that's what we pray for each other. I'll give you an example of this. I remember when Lenore and I were, um, uh, we were 21, uh, engaged, uh, to be married, and uh, we were seeking out counsel of um, uh, some older Christian couples at church about what we should do with our finances. And, and we came to some couples who we knew were, they just, we, we, we respected them and we knew they were in the scriptures, and they took us to different places to talk about how we use our money. And they said something like this we were trying to work out what we should do, and they said, I reckon, based on the fact that you need to be generous with other people, not be a burden on others and make wise decisions, here's a tip. Never borrow for anything other than buying a house. Now, for some of us, that may be wise or unwise. They said, look, there's a principle in the Scriptures that it seems like you need to be content with what you have and that we ought not to live beyond our means. So, if you haven't got money for the car, don't buy it. If you haven't got money for the holiday, don't go. If you haven't got money for the latest gadget that you'd like, don't buy it. Now, a house, you're never going to be able to save enough to, to buy a house like that. You have to borrow. But for anything else, don't borrow. We took their advice. Now, in God's goodness, that's turned out to be the, one of the best, the, the best financial tip that we ever got. Because we decided that we'd, we'd stick with our bomby car and that we wouldn't take fancy holidays as much but that we'd save up deposit, get a house, and that's been, real, that's been a really wise thing to do. And it's enabled us to be generous now at 35 in a way that otherwise we would not have been able to be generous. God created discernment to make superior decisions in the lives of those older Christians, and we listened. And can I say that we benefited heaps from that? Benefited heaps from that. Seek out people who are soaked in the Scriptures so you might learn from their discernment, Right? But there's another reason for this. It's not so we just make good choices. 
There's a bigger reason. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Paul says this. He says, I pray this so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, more than anything else, what did Paul want? Paul wanted the Philippians to be ready for that great day when they would come and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's urgent about. That's what he's talking about, the day of Christ. And this wasn't just a holy thing today. To say it wasn't sort of some millennial obsession. This is Paul's way of life. Because Christian growth, it's not just about us. It's about the fact that one day we'll all come and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. And Paul is obsessed about that day. Because all of us, every single one of us sitting here, one day will come and stand before Jesus. And he's going to ask us questions like this. In love, he'll say, why did you do that? And why did you do that? And why did you spend time on that? And why did you spend your money on that? You see, Christians will be judged too. He's going to assess the decisions that we made. And on that day, what does Paul want for the people that he loves? Is that on that day, they would be found to be pure and blameless. What does he mean? Pure, that will be found to be unmixed. In other words, that what Jesus sees... What you see is what you get, and what you get is good. And then on that day, we'll be seen to be blameless. That when we come and stand before Jesus, it literally says that we won't stumble. And that's a great metaphor, right? It's a metaphor of saying that when we come to stand before the Lord Jesus, there won't be things that we've done that we know he's seen that will cause us to not be able to stand up in front of him. That will literally be embarrassingly just stumbling in front of him as we declare the decisions that we've made. Now, I know what you're thinking as I say that. That's impossible. Of course, yes, it is impossible. None of us will ever be perfectly pure and none of us will ever be perfectly blameless and none of us will ever be perfectly righteous. There is only one person, isn't there, who was always pure, his motives were never mixed. There's only one person who's perfectly blameless who'll be able to stand up straight as can be at the judgment. There's only one person who's perfectly righteous and the judge would have nothing to say against him. And who's that? Say his name. Jesus, right? It's Jesus. That's who it is, right? And in what Martin Luther called the great exchange, isn't this beautiful? That Jesus, our sin and our poor decisions and our impurity and our blamefulness, is that a word? I don't know if that's a word, was given to him and his righteousness was given to us. I mean, we deserve death, but he exchanged it for his. We were impure but he exchanged it for his purity. We were not blameless, but he exchanged it for his blamelessness. We're not righteous, but he gave us his righteous status before his Father. And so we should pray with each other that that new life that he's given to us, and now he changes the metaphor, would bear fruit, a changed life, as a result of the gift that we've been given. I mean, it was Jesus who said this, whoever remains in me will bear much, what? Fruit. If we remain in Christ and hear his word, he will change us and will make better decisions. So Paul prays that when Jesus comes back and we stand before him, that he will see our decisions as being pure and blameless and like a tree laden with the fruit of a changed life that comes from him. But you know, 
Even though that's what Paul wants to see, there's an ultimate goal in all of this, and it's actually got nothing to do with us. Do you see, see what he says that the ultimate end of all of this is? What does he say? To the praise, to the glory and praise of God. That's just not something that Paul tacks on to the end. That's the reason why he prays. I mean, God in the Bible is unswervingly committed to his own praise and his own glory. There is nothing that matters more to God in this world that he gets glory and that he gets praise. That's what matters most to him. And Paul is utterly committed to that. And that makes absolutely good sense, doesn't it? Because when a tree bears fruit, who looks good? Well, the tree. Right? But who gets the glory? The gardener. Yeah? I don't know. Who is into... I'm not into gardening, so this is a tricky illustration for me. But apparently there's gardening shows. Is this true? <laughs> I know that's true. But, you know, there's gardening shows, and apparently they give prizes. Is this right? Who's been to a gardening show? Right? Now, you can admit it. Bernie, is this true? You've been to one? Yes, you have. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. When you go to a gardening show, apparently, insert car show if you need to, just to, for this illustration to work, right? When they put the ribbon on, if, they, if that's what they do, what, do they hang it on the tree? No. What are they, who do they hang it over? The gardener, right? Or if it's your car that you've built up, they don't put the ribbon on the car, ultimately. Who do they put it on? The guy who built it. That's exactly right, right? If Paul prays this prayer for the Philippians and God answers their prayer and they change, who looks good? Well, the Philippians. But who gets the glory? God. Like when we make good decisions about the way that we use our time based on a growing knowledge of God, who looks good? Sometimes we look good. Sometimes our friends go, your life is changing. How is that possible? And then you say, well, actually, Jesus is changing me. And so ultimately, who gets the glory? Him. When we make superior decisions about what we spend our money on, we decide, maybe I'm not going to buy that particular thing or that house or or I'm going to downgrade the car a little bit, or I'm not going to quite go on the holiday that I would have otherwise gone on. Ultimately, who looks good? Well, maybe you, but ultimately, who gets the glory? God. You know, when we make right decisions about the relationships that we enter into, because you become more discerning based on what you're reading in the Scriptures, who, who looks good? Well, you perhaps, but who gets the glory? God does. And that should be our aim in life, is to make God look magnificent as he changes us. Have a look at this prayer with me again. I want, to pray, I want us to pray this for each other. Um, look at this prayer again. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you can approve of the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, ultimately to the glory of praise of God. And you know what? If You know this is a real prayer? Uh, I'll tell you one thing I hate in church life is, uh, there's not many things I hate, but it's pious musings. Do you know what I mean by that? You know people who say stuff and then they just appear holier than thou? Right? It's just so annoying. Okay? If you say that you're going to pray for someone, pray for them. Don't be the person who rattles off verses and says, oh, I'm praying for you, and you never do. But you know what I really love in church life is when someone says, I, 
I'm praying for you. And they really are. Because this is Paul. This is a real guy in a real place, in a real jail cell, with real people he loves, and this is exactly the prayer he prays for them. This is the sort of prayer that we ought to be praying for each other. Because we love each other. We care for ourselves and our families and our friends and our church. And we should pray a prayer like this. And it's right that we should be praying for, you know, what's going on that we're sick and that we're looking for a job and that things are a bit tight with money. Of course we pray for all those things. But over the top of all of that is this sort of prayer. That we would invest in the decisions that each of us are making. And what's the best way to do that? Prayerfully get into the word of God with each other. If you want your friends to make great decisions, then prayerfully be in the word of God together. I think that's what Paul would say. So why don't I pray this prayer of Paul's for us. Let's let's pray together. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, um, uh, I pray this for us. Father, I pray that as as Church in the Bank, that you would help us, that, that our love for you and then our love for each other Uh, Father, I pray that you would help it to keep on growing. That it would grow and it would grow and it would grow and it would grow. Father, help it to grow in knowledge. We we, we pray that as we read your word, you would give us every reason to love you more and more. And so, Father, we pray that there'd be a love filled of a deepening knowledge of you. And, And Father, I pray that our love for each other would grow in discernment. That you'd actually help us to approve of the things that are superior and disapprove of the things that are not superior. And Father, help us to be good friends in that, that as we seek to invest in the decisions that each other is making, that you would help us to love one another enough to share the discernment that you've grown in us with each other, so that we would not make just right, wrong decisions, but we would make superior decisions, so we would choose the best things to do. And Father, as we do that, we we long for each other and we we love one another. And so we pray that you would help us to be pure on the day of Christ and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit that comes from knowing him uh, of changed lives. And Father, ultimately, if, if you change any of us by your grace, we pray that the glory would not go to us, that we would not be proud, arrogant, religious people. Uh, Father, that the glory would ultimately, and the praise would ultimately go to you. That as we change people would see you and praise your name. And uh, I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.